episode 124, Delia Derbyshire, The Myths and Legendary Tapes, with director and star Caroline Katz. In this episode, Neil interviews Caroline on his own due to Dario's technical difficulties, and he also does so with a cold, so apologies in advance for that. The conversation ranges from Delia Derbyshire and the Radiophonic Workshop to pioneering women in music and Caroline's amazingly unique approach to telling this story through a mix of traditional archive and interview footage, a collaboration with Cozy Fanny Tutti, and by taking on the role of Delia Derbyshire herself to tell so much of this story. It's a fascinating conversation with a really unique filmmaker. And elsewhere, Neil and Dario touch on the recent release, Sitters with Transistors, which also features Derbyshire and her contemporaries and those who came in their wake. Thanks to Caroline for her participation in this episode, and thanks to Dario for setting it up. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and I'm delighted to be joined, as always, by Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Nice to join you, finally. I know, it has more <laughs> potentious meaning than it normally does when I say I'm, I'm pleased to be joined by you. Uh, do you want to explain why? Yeah, Yeah. what a nightmare morning that was. Jeez. Yeah, I've, I mean, just technical issues, really. I've, um, I've kind of got to the point where... You know, in my privilege, I've got two computers that I can use, and both of them have decided to pack up kind of at exactly at the same time. So I've always been somebody who's, who tries to, you know, not ostentatiously go for as the highest technology possible whenever it's available. And, and so, so I'm using workarounds a lot of the time for editing and all this kind of stuff. But I've just forked out for a, a new Mac, one of the new desktop ones with a one terabyte memory. And really, it's just for the the ability to be able to do the remote recording a lot more smoothly, you know, and everything else that that comes along with that. But it's just got to the point where these little, these smaller computers can't handle it. And unfortunately, this morning we had a complete and utter computer says no moment. For those of you who remember that reference, yeah, um, and a funny moment in the sense of you know. It, the episode was all about technology really um and innovations and kind of experiments with and kind of groundbreaking uses of technology and then that was the first thing we we sort of said when um when when we started the interview was you know we're just so reliant on it and you just you know like literally if it decides to stop you know that classic ai thing if i robot if it decides to rebel yeah we are screwed you know we are just flailing around with text messaging being yeah. like so yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, an interesting start to the day. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up doing an interview on my own that you sorted all out yourself. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, do you want to sort of mention what one. we're going to be chatting about today? Yeah. So it was interesting because I saw this uh, this film um, about the pioneer engineer and composer and mathematician Delia Derbyshire on iPlayer. Uh, Delia Derbyshire, the 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 myths and secret tapes is that is that uh, legendary tapes? Legendary yeah. tapes. Sorry, I've yeah, got yeah. my notes in front of me because my computer is <laughs> still not working properly. Um, and 
Yeah, ju I just happened to, to watch that exactly the same day that the director and writer and star in inverted commas, which I'm sure you've talked about, was on Twitter saying that she was looking forward to listening to our Radio 1 episode with Mark Jenkin. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a coincidence. And I'd just seen the, the film and I just thought, oh, this is really interesting because it's a music documentary and I know that's your, your thing with the book and everything. And it was really interesting to me as well because, not be just, just because of the subject matter, but the way that it was done in terms of being a drama documentary because I seem to have watched three or four drama documentaries, which is a very sort of specific genre and has a... I don't know whether it, it, it's... It seems to have, be having a moment when traditionally it's not something that is really taken that seriously, it seems to me, as a, as a kind of way of doing film. You either go for the drama or you go for the documentary. So I was, I was just interested in sort of talking to Caroline about that and got in touch with her on Twitter and she was very gracious, said that, yes, she likes the show and was happy to come on. And I'm just gutted I didn't get to, to speak to her. I'll have to uh, try that another way. Yes, uh, hopefully I, I did. Uh, I did you justice, um, and yeah, I think it was it was interesting because it was a film that I reviewed for the Quietest when it was at London Film Festival. Um, it's a film I really love, so I was really excited when you sort of suggested it and, and said that Caroline was interested because um, I do think it's a fascinating example of a music documentary. Um, but I think you know because in a lot of music documentaries, you almost have these sort of small elements of recreation where they're used to bridge or to kind of evoke you know uh, a famous recording session or a famous you know sort of like the in um the ballad of shirley collins you know they sort of have these nice 16 mil recreations of her trip across america with alan lomax and things like that but they're they're not the entirety of the focus whereas in caroline's film she plays delia derbyshire and she yep. is you know she embodies her and we talk about that a lot in the interview but but certainly kind of recreating her time pre-radiophonic workshop but then also in the workshop um in terms of those those amazing experiments which led most famously to her creating the doctor who theme so yeah it's a it's a fascinating film and um yeah it was it was good to chat to her about um about her process and about why she decided to take that route in terms of dramatizing so much in terms of the the story Awesome. Well, yeah, you've got a, a bumper amount of tapes, so which I haven't heard yet. So it's going to be interesting to what to say at the end of this. But um, yeah, I think we'll just get straight on with it. So this is Neil talking to uh, Caroline Katz. Yeah, and you join us in the conversation just as Caroline is talking about when we met at Portelia a few years ago. We did a chat about Bronco's house at the time, and uh, yeah, yeah, and then I think you were working on the short at the time, or you'd finished the short. I I was, yeah, I can't remember. I was working on the short, and I, I think I I was screening a film there that I'd made about. Um, was it the Jesse Hector yes, film? Yes, that was it. A yeah. message to the yeah, world, yeah, yeah. maybe that. Yeah, yeah, that's why I was yeah. there. But it was uh, early days for Delia. It was sort of the beginning of the Delia yeah. thing. Yeah, I remember you talking mm. when it sounded like a great project at the time. Oh. So it's amazing to see it, yeah, come to fruition. 
Thanks. Yeah, it's been a, a long. It's been a long old road. As it often is, I think, as well, isn't it? That's the thing. It takes. Yeah. It takes yeah. a while. Um, yeah. And I guess obviously last yeah. year didn't help. Was there a was there a different plan for the film? I guess. <laughs> uh, and how scuppered were you by the by the pandemic in terms of a theatrical release? Yeah. Well, we were lucky in that our commission came from BBC Arena, so you know, assuming that it all went to plan and we could actually get it shot and everything else. I'm thinking, you know, before the pandemic, obviously, um, we had this, we had this broadcast slot. So that was always a brilliant thing. But the great thing about doing this arena was that we also had the ability to have it in cinemas and for it to have a festival life. In fact, we have two cuts. We have our broadcast cut and we have our festival cut. So, you know, the festival thing has happened, albeit online. Um, and we have had a screening in Australia, but obviously we weren't there. And we've got a screening coming up in Hackney. So it's a slower version of what we imagined it might be. But the plan is still kind of in place. So um, there's some festivals coming up that will be physical screenings and um, yeah, some more physical screenings planned, but not that kind of idea of a, a little sort of mini uh, UK tour at this point. Yeah. But yeah, but the rest of the plans have worked. So we've got what's fantastic is that you can see the the broadcast cut. Um, for a year now on iPlayer since the broadcast a couple of weeks ago. So that's fantastic. I'm just great. It's out in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I saw the Festival Cup when it played at London because um, I did I did yes. a review for The Quietus and saw your, your Q&A as well, which was, which was really fun. So it's interesting to watch it again and see what, what didn't make it into the broadcast slot. <laughs> yeah. So we had this sort of um, the original cut. I mean, the festival cut is one hour 41. And for for Arena, we needed it to be one sort of 90 minutes, exactly 90 mm. minutes. So I thought, oh, be fine, which was stupid because every single time I've had to sort of, you know, think about cutting it. You know, our original cut was two hours 40. And I thought, oh, I'll just do I'll just cut 10 minutes out a day and it'll be fine. And of course, it was agony. It was like surgery. It was pain. Yeah. So it was just the same. Just even taking this, finding these ten minutes, um, because as you know, these things are constructed in such a way that everything it's 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 very sort of fine and precisely done, and any kind of dismantling just knocks the whole yeah. thing off. So in in the end, I think we. Um, I had a think about it and I, I talked to Andy Stark, um, our producer, and he, you know, was definitely of a mind that that we should do it. We should remove chunks rather than small sort of infinitesimal bits, which is in the end what we did. Did you take a kind of like a thematic approach and think, OK, well, you know, what not what can we lose, but certainly what, you know, sort of like say picking a piece where you, you think, OK, this is a a section on its own which would be great to be in there but um you know the, the 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 work will still make sense and have a kind of flow without it um yes basically i mean the first you know i think the first hour was is still completely intact so it's the, it's within the second hour um 
that's that we sort of it, you start getting into yeah. things of like do we need to see another piece constructed have we got enough can we come back to that in a different way um and mm. and um for instance we had a really nice section of uh, with um great zoos of the world um and with Delia constructing that and there was a really sort of fun element um and in the end although that was that was a, one of my favorite bits um it, it was a sort of a repetition of of track building and so we found a place to put it in a section where she was starting mm. to break down and we um sort of added little elements from that piece because it was a, a piece that was much more um I, I think probably representative of of her really um going to a place that was quite extreme so we used it as a sort of a little motif rather than a whole sort of section yeah. so things like that um yeah and I guess that makes sense in terms of it being on the BBC and being the place mm. where it's going to introduce so many people to Delia you know whereas the other stuff is is probably more for the people who know or become interested and want the extra kind of nerdiness and the extra kind of insight into the yeah the kind of the mechanics yeah I, I think I think that's fair mm. um the you know uh, mm. other things that were yeah I, it, it's always it's it's I, I like both cuts and I find them to be both really different actually they do different things one has yeah. more space and one is is tighter and punchier and I think mm. there's it, that sort of reminds me of, of, of Delia as well in some ways because, you know, she has these sort of beautiful, finely crafted moments of, um, you know, sort of incidental music. And she also has these huge, expansive pieces and they're, they're equally powerful, but they have a kind of, um, you know, a different quality. So, I mean, I'm not comparing my film to her pieces in that way exactly but just in terms of there being um a scope for something that's more expansive and poetic and something that's just a little bit tighter I think you know within that yeah. you, you can you can find both of those places when you're making a film can't you yeah and I think you know something I did want to talk to you about is is, is where you sort of see your yourself in in the mix because obviously you're you're there as Delia in the film but you're also there as a filmmaker and there's so many filmmaking decisions, you know, so I think, I think, you know, you're, you're both sort of placing Delia in a lineage mm -hmm. of women. Um, but also you're, you're placing yourself in the, in that lineage as well, not arrogantly, but certainly creatively, which I think is really, really fascinating, particularly with, which hopefully we'll talk about with the, with, with Cozy Fanny Tutti's role in the film as well. But just on that, I think that, yeah, it, Delia was a person who found herself, in the only place that could possibly take her. Um, and like you say that, that, you know, in terms of the radiophonic workshop, you know, sort of managed to, to, to find her place there, but, but the output was, you know, theme tunes and, you know, small sections. So she almost had to try and find a way to, to get it into that, that kind of three minute or, you know, kind of, or motif work, um, even in a, in a, in a, in a, in a longer piece, which I think is really, really fascinating. So she, she, she always had to, live in those two spaces, the kind of the, the personal creative space of these expansive, mm. huge kind of, but then also trying to funnel that into, you know, a theme tune or, you know, uh, a segment, um, a segment piece, you know, which I yes. think is, 
amazing. I think that tension is what really fascinates me about her too. I think uh, there she is. I mean, she's sort of entered into something that she feels is a laboratory, you know, for her, you know, creative. Um, it's it, it, it's a place for her to play, explore, the only place in the country that she could access where she could experiment with tape manipulation, which was what she was fascinated in, in with as, as, as it was a new technology at that time. Um, so there she, she is, she stepped into this laboratory, but at the same time, um, it's also a service provider. And I think that's something that she, that, that she struggled with. So what's so beautiful about, for instance, the Doctor Who theme is that she is, you know, placing this very avant-garde and extremely, in some ways, sort of challenging and terrifying piece of music into the mainstream through a sort of children's tea time show, you know. Uh, So she kind of finds these amazing ways of doing that. And that's because I think she was, although a a genius with her... um, in the way that she crafted her pieces, she she was not afraid to be challenging, but but also yeah. had this incredible ability to work with melody. So there was always a way a way into these very challenging pieces. It wasn't just something yeah. that was inaccessible and difficult. It was something that she that became also sort of playful and and interesting to to anybody's ears. So yeah. um, that's what's so I think so unique about her. Mm. and uh, re-watching the film I just kind of struck by it's kind of amazing that this thing existed you know that this place <laughs> existed not well not only that it existed but that it was publicly funded yeah. you know and sort of and, and did that thing like you're saying it, it was kind of serving you know serving the state broadcaster it's just you know it's it's such a beautiful reminder the film of of of, of a period of time where there was this space to do I that um, and it just feels completely completely impossible at the moment that, that you would have this in this lab with all these exper- these kind of sound experiments I know and this idea that this sort of strange place would be allowed to exist for its own sake just for an environment of experimentation to be kind of nurtured and promoted in the mainstream I mean that seems to be from a totally different era doesn't it yeah and also that yeah it has to be functional because like you know so they end up using this stuff that they're making because that's the department that does it and in that almost pragmatic relationship between the you know the the tv the program makers and the the workshop you get innovation and you get these new sounds in the mainstream which are just completely alien and incredible um because of that that relationship and it, it just feels absolutely incredible it is extraordinary. I, th- I think, you know, you, for a place like that to exist, we have to be an environment that allows us to take risks. Risks, and we we live in very risk averse times, don't we? And so, if you don't allow a climate of invention, you end up with a pretty bland cultural landscape, and that's not very good. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, what kind of inspired me. Well, everything about the radiophonic workshop has always fascinated me. It's always been there in my mind, sort of growing up. Um, and also in my 20s and, and 30s, just thinking, God, is that the end of that sort of thing? 
I mean, it obviously is. We've got these, uh, another sort of amazing um, technologies and everything is so much more accessible to us in many ways. But just the idea that um, the in, in terms of what's available through the establishment and through the mainstream is kind of not... It, that th- 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 Those sort of experimental corners of our... Um, if you see what I mean, that what am I trying to say? That those sort of areas that you can access that are ex- available to experiment, like for instance, you know, in in the sixties, the BBC having sort of places where filmmakers could experiment, where you know the radiophonic workshop yeah. would would be able to exist. You know, it's. I think I've always yeah. kind of, it's always been a, a concern of mine that those, you know, how do we access those things if they're not available to us? And I think, yeah. you know, I, you, even just the, you know, the, the radiophonic workshop, um, even just the words, even just the fact that it's called that, it conjures this image of hearing strange, unearthly sounds coming from the other side of a door somewhere in a, a place where unknowable yeah. worlds are conjured. And you know, I always imagine people working there a bit like kind of medieval alchemists or some, something, you know, sort of like identifying elements and modifying metals and turning lead into gold. You know, and that's very similar to what music concrete is. It's changing the nature of sound. It's yeah. kind of like an alchemical process. And that was there. That was, it was state funded. It was there in the BBC embedded in it. I mean, yeah. I know they had to fight very hard for it, but they got it. Yeah. And the results were seen, like you say, in the mainstream. I think that one of the things that we almost kind of slid into culturally is this idea that because of technology being available, you know, that you don't need to have those spaces because people will, you know, it's like, well, they'll, you can, you can, you can do it on your phone, you can get field recordings and you can manipulate them and, you know, like you can, but, but it's, there's something completely different when, like you say, that it's, it's, it's in the middle of, it's in, it's in plain view. These things are in terms of the results of what they're doing um, on documentaries that, people, yeah. that millions of people are watching. That it's encouraged. Yeah. The experimentation is something that we nurture and encourage, and um, I think it's always it, it it's always amazing to me when people do kind of go off and just have a a singular vision or an idea that they want to explore. And they push it through, and it gets to a point where people go, "Oh, but that's not normally how we do it. How did how did that happen?" And it's like, well, that's what happens where when people are allowed to explore the possibilities and and sort of break out of the focus groups mm. and the algorithms and you know we're we're living in in times that are kind kind of scary there's a lot of you know I, I, it yeah it worries me all of that but your film definitely seems to have you know taken kind of delia's inspiration but certainly that that kind of challenge of the moment because your film is not risk averse you know it's a really experimental piece in many many ways you know and it takes big risks in terms of point of view and audience address and the way it kind of puts together this this story almost like you're saying this kind of reappropriation of so many different existing elements particularly from music Mm. documentary you know um how did you 
is, is that fair that there's that kind of spirit of Delia, but obviously in a very different form? Um, and 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 where where did you first become aware of, of Delia as a as a person and as a as a, as a creator? Well, um, I think you know, growing up as a Doctor Who fan and. <laughs> being haunted by the theme tune every Saturday tea time and never knowing that this fascinating female composer created it. I mean, that had a very powerful effect on me because I was more terrified listening to the theme music than I was actually watching the show. If I think back, really, that's what sent me diving behind the sofa and sort of everybody I knew. I was really fascinated by that as well as I got older. How come everybody knew to do the same thing? you know what what was it in the music there must have been something very very powerful in the fabric of the music that affected us so it wasn't really it wasn't really until the 90s um that i i realized that delia derbyshire created it and the story intrigued me and i found it baffling that why wasn't she a household name so I think when delia's archive was donated to manchester university um i went to visit sort of whenever it was 2009 or something um and it and it, it was from listening to Delia's tapes that were discovered in her attic you know she'd cleared her desk in 72 or 73 um and kept all her work in these boxes and I was very touched and moved by that when I went there and at that point it before you know it was before it had gone to John Rylands it was still at the screen studies department at Manchester University and it was you know you opened this cupboard and there were these boxes and there was this person's life's work and all their ephemera and all their papers and all that energy just lying there in a sort of very um I don't know it just it it, it I just found it very very affecting and I just wanted to know more about her and I wanted to know if there was a way of breathing life into this archive and on some level trying to make a a story out of it. Um, And if that was, if that was possible, there was many, many layers of how to go about that. And I, so my sort of starting point was the box of tapes. Um, So it was from the perspective of wanting to understand Delia and from a very deep curiosity about her that a relationship began to develop and she really kind of entered my imagination. And it was a very powerful experience spending time in the company of someone through sound, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a short before it was a feature and often there's a, uh, that's a, you know, sometimes done as a kind of proof of concept, but it sounds there like it was also a kind of test for yourself to see how you would do justice to the story, how you would sort of, compl- you know, sort of get all that complexity and, and feeling into, you know, into a film. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd had this idea for, you know, since then, since 2009, something like that, even before really I'd been thinking about it since I'd read about the tapes Um and I'd, I'd taken the idea around to people. No one was interested. A lot of people would say, oh, too niche. Oh, no one's even heard of her. And you'd be like, but what about Doctor Who? And what about, yeah, and like, yes, but no one knows about her. And, it, you know, not it's not something that we're interested in. So it was, but I carried on with it and I carried on researching and I carried on, you know, writing it actually. And it wasn't until I met um, Andy Stark from Rook Films I talked to him about it and um, he really liked the idea and he read the script, the full 
form the full feature that I'd written at that point. And he said, I really like it, but I think it's going to be very difficult to get anybody to understand what this is until they can see something. So he brilliantly suggested that we did a short and we literally just took two scenes out of the um, the feature script and kind of created that short. Yeah, amazing. And mm. the, the I'd like to talk about the style now because I think that, you know, I class it as a music documentary. That's because I'm sort of writing about it and I see it in that in that context. But obviously that a lot of the influences feel very narrative. You know, you sort of mention Andy Stark and Rook Films. And I think you said that you contacted him because of his work with Peter Strickland. Sort of, and, and, well, yeah. And also, Ben, I think really um, that, you know, I really love the Ben Wheatley films. Um and A Field in England was a film that I, I think I, just before I spoke to him, I'd seen that film. Was that 2014 that film came out? Sounds about right, yeah. Sounds yeah, right. and it was, it was when that film came out and it was that multi-platform thing. Um, and it was a point where, you know, kids were small and the idea of being able to see a film at home when everyone else was going to the cinema was just on the day it was released was so exciting, <laughs> you know. And I loved that film so much. And I watched it. I watched it twice back to back. Um, I absolutely loved every inch and second of that movie. So he, that was very much in my mind when I when I met him. Um, so, yeah, his films with Ben and... Mm. And also um, uh, Duke of Burgundy at that okay. point. Yeah. Yeah, because mm. yeah, I think, and it, I mean, obviously the sound element gives it kind of strong Barbarian sound studio vibes um, for me. But also, you know, this, it feels like it reminded me of Dogville. It also reminded me of Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. You know, oh, in this kind God, of... You've just said all the ones that were in my mind, Correct. all my favourite things. Yeah, Correct. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good, because I think, you know, it, it, it's such a loving homage to... to to, to those as well um and there's it, what comes out of it is this idea of an, an exchange of ideas across time and sort of phantom collaborations which hearing you talk about being with the archive and the kind of proximity to Delia through her work in that in that in that space sort of makes sense but I wonder if you could talk about the design of the film where you're in it as Delia but also you're in the space with Cozy Fanny Tutu, who's also responding to the archive and also responding to you as Delia. You know, that, <laughs> it feels like a really complex design. You know, could you talk a bit about how it all, you know, was it purely just, you know, instinct or was there more of a kind of Delia-esque layering of elements to find almost an equation that worked? A bit of that. It evolved, that idea, although... The sort of idea of construction. I think what the thing that was very, very clear, literally from the moment the cupboard doors opened at Manchester University, and I saw these fragments of somebody's life there, and the idea that there was a soundtrack sitting in another box to the right of them. You know, it was like, um, it was just an idea of what is the truth of anybody's story. How do you find, how do you find that truth? Um, and, and and questions, you know, what would be the best way to tell this story? How, how do you tell a true story? Can you ever tell a totally true story? There's always perspective. Um, yeah. So I, I, that was like, those questions were like glaring at me every minute. 
And I wanted to play with that idea. So I, I knew that. Um, and as an actor, you know, you're always kind of creating and recreating some version of a texture of experience. And um, so I kind of approached it as I would with anything like you do with an actor. As an actor, you're sort of trying to understand that person. And at the same time, I was thinking a lot about, you know, the limits and the kind of philosophical problems of what biography is. So I'm really fascinated about that, you know how do you depict a creative process and how do you calibrate the relationship between a life and the work? So all these questions were just, were, were I found really, really interesting. Mm. So it was, it was kind of a process of, of, of finding a way to answer those. Um, and I think what I wanted to do was expose the structure of the film in a way. And I wanted it to mirror the construction of a piece that Delia would be making in by tape by tape. So it would be a very sort of physical and structural, uh, um, sort of sculptural process in a way, which all sounds really complicated, but in my mind, it was really, really clear. It was like, you know, you have these fragments, the fragments are, would be sets. So they were almost like installations and then how do you journey from installation to installation? Um, and how do you create something like the inside of... I just love the idea of trying to recreate the inside of Delia's imagination, which was hugely lofty. Um, but, I, you know, my inspiration was the Radiophonic Workshop you know, how do you do it out of a bit of old equipment? How do you do it when you've got just, just using the resources that you have, yeah. basically, which then took me to um, my absolute fascination with Dogville, um, yeah. which has always, I just love that thing that they did with that film, that Lars von Trier did with that film, where you are stripping back all the sort of cinematic sort of rules and tropes and you're bringing sort of all the rules of theater into it but at the same time you're even deconstructing that yeah so it becomes very brechtian so there was i knew it worked because it worked for me i mean i found that film so exciting to watch i mean obviously very problematic film in all sorts of ways but in terms of its structure and the way it looked i loved it yeah so i kind of i felt that within our very tiny budget, we would be able to afford to to try and recreate um, a, the world of Delia's interior imagination as I saw it. But very, very subjective. This was also the danger. It's a very subjective response to Delia. It's also, you could call it another piece of fan art, if you like. You know, it was, I didn't even mind that too much because yeah. so much... There's so many myths, which is why we call it the myths and the legendary tapes. It's because there are so many myths that have been projected onto Delia. And so my only understanding of Delia as I was growing up through the 90s was very much through other people's perspectives and that one iconic photograph of her and everybody else's kind of fantasy of who this person was. And then the usual kind of, you know, some things will be true, some things won't be true, all of that. So I wanted to expose this structure of the film and and the construction of the narrative. And so 
I don't know. That's kind of kind of how it all happened. It kind of and it worked in that way. You know that some of that Brechtian stuff that in, in theatre I really love. Um, and although it's dealing with really really serious and heavy topics, it's so playful. The mm. idea of coming in and out and breaking this fourth wall and connecting with an audience yeah um in that way so this was all my thinking really yeah it's, it's just it's lovely to hear you talk about it because i think that so much of i'm writing a book on music documentaries at the moment and um what's common across so many of them for me is a kind of yeah, a disconnect between the subject and the um and the form of the film you know that so for example you know that the, the films about miles davis and john coltrane are the subject's fascinating but the films to me always just err on the side of of let's tell the biography and it's like but you're talking about these incredible you know two of the most innovative and kind of forward thinking forward looking musicians in the 20th century where's the spirit of that in the film and that was so refreshing in your film was like this this is the film about Delia Derbyshire because it's trying to emulate in its own form what Delia was doing and what those other people in the radiophonic workshop and what that whole period of electronic music was 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 trying to do and i think that's one thing i hadn't sort of considered was was that idea of the questioning of you and it's it's so obvious now that you are reminding people that a documentary cannot be a biography and it cannot be truth and it cannot be authentic so it has to be something else and it's something that is absolutely in sync with its subject i think it's and it, it it's not it's not fan art because it's it is it's questioning form and it's questioning what is this thing and, and how is it working as it's going through and i think it's really it's yeah it's remarkable and it's 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 a, it's so exciting to hear you to know that that was the starting point was was the subject and what the subject was doing rather than oh this is an interesting person and i want to introduce the world to them it's like no it's like you're interrogating this person through the film and we get to share in that Good. I'm really glad that you that you picked up on those things. I think, um, yeah, it's it, this thing of something being very subjective. You know, it, it, I, that was the only way I could I, I I kind of could approach it. You know, this is not the definitive Delia Derbyshire A to Z biography. It's not the Wikipedia story. It's it's just it's how her music has made me feel over throughout my life and my fascination with her and why I think she was important so this was kind of you know why I couldn't let go of it as a film and why I couldn't let go of the story um, and wanting to tell that story so you know I guess it's that thing of um yeah, that's kind of how it yeah. got to where it got to because I had to stick with it for a lot of years to make that come out. But you know, when you know something has to happen, <laughs> you know, yeah. I sort of was like, this really has to happen. <laughs> it really has to happen. Um, but yeah, uh, and I, I just felt like it was overdue. I was like, why don't why why aren't there millions of films about her? Yeah. <laughs> why aren't there millions of biographies already written? I think she's completely fascinating. Anyway, I, yeah, sorry. That's all right. No, no. Wiring on. <laughs> but obviously, you know, a couple of things there. One is, you know, that why isn't there more? But there is now another film, Sisters with Transistors, which features yes. Delia, which is yes. interesting to watch in, in relation to yours because it does have other biographical and kind of, you know, historical information that yours doesn't which reminds you of the choices that you've made and i don't think that's a bad thing and it's nice to have 
something else, you know. But it does feel like a moment for um, for Delia and other, you know, Daphne Oram as well was featured quite heavily in Sisters with Transistors, who was who's part of the, the workshop as well. Yes, um, yes. But what, what, why now? You know, obviously we know why from your point of view, but why do you think that there is that? Why do you think Arena said yes? Why do you think that, you know, mm. do you feel like there's a moment for these women um, in terms of starting to to uncover their role in, in sort of musical history? I mean, two very different films. Yes, I think, absolutely. you know, yeah. Delia's um, contribution in Sisters of Transistors is, you know, Delia is one of a canon of 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 women, you know, exploring electronic music. Um, and there is a story within that film that's to do with the story of electronic music and investigating how all these different women have found their way to to it as a medium to express themselves um so i think it's a very it's it's kind of different but still at the same time it, yeah i think it's massive coincidence that come out exactly the same time really really nice as well because they're very good companions yeah. i think yeah um and um yes it climate yeah. the, the world i mean i would i don't know how long that film took to come come to fruition but I would imagine it was many many years in the making um uh, maybe not as many as as this one but still it's you know the world's kind of ready to hear the stories that are there anyway it's like those stories have been there that those sounds have been there those women are there but um it's like who's opening the door to allow the stories in it's that kind of conversation really without wanting to um be really dow- dour and negative about it because it's good that it's happen happening yeah. now, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, I think particularly, you know, in, in terms of Delia, I think what's really fascinating to me about her at this time in our world is that, you know, we're, she was not a socially conditioned person and we're living in, I think, quite dangerous times where our censoring of one another is so at the forefront of everything. Mm. Um, and I think what made her truly countercultural was her very singular vision. Yeah. Um, and 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 I'm attracted to sort of how how tenacious she was. Um, and she was tenacious in an environment where she wasn't totally supported and her con- contribution was continually being downplayed. So I see her as an activist yeah. in a way. And it requires an activist approach to keep going, to keep on track with these explorations, to find practical solutions, even when you're sort of going down blind alleys and you, you know you have to work into the night because there's not enough space in the in the workshop for her to work with other people. So she was breaking new ground with the ambition of her pieces while working in this environment that was not designed yeah. for her. So I, I think that is a conversation that we're starting to have now, aren't we? About who, you know, how how much energy do, does it take for somebody to just be allowed to to work um, in an environment that hasn't been letting them in yeah. and that's just goes for all diversity I think and yeah. just we're starting to make we're starting to make small amounts of progress so it's very welcome 
Yeah, and I think what's fascinating, you know, both in Sisters with Transistors, but also in the in, in your film, is is this kind of increasing understanding that you know that Delia was multi multi afflicted in terms of the challenges that she faced. She was a woman, you know, which is obviously a massive challenge now, but but certainly at the time. But she was also interested in maths and she was also interested in computers. So when you lay those on, um, and then she was um, interested, you know, she was working class and she was interested in the avant-garde. You know, they are, when you sort of marry them with being a woman, they are they are increasing barriers, you know. So it, it's it's ever more remarkable that that she that she not only overcame them, but created a body of work which is monumental, you know. Yeah. And is absolutely. that is that a reason... Was that a reason for, or one of the reasons that for kind of getting Cozy Fanny Tutti involved? Because she's obviously musically in in spirit with, but but certainly as a as a kind of performance activist and her career in terms of being a very provocative, um, you know, w- woman in the in, in in the music business. You know, it, it feels although her music is very very different, particularly like the music she was known for in the in sort of the seventies and eighties. But mm. there is a kinship there. You know, was was that another reason to think oh this is a this is another way into what the story's about in a, in a broader context absolutely it was really important to me that um we sort of investigated the the legacy of delia um and and how her how her experience is is how her experience and how her music has influenced other other musicians. And, you know, to me, it had to be, I, I, you know, I, I can listen to the music and have my feelings about it and what I wanted to express and what I wanted to um, sort of, it, how I wanted to interpret that. But I, I want, I brought Cozy in quite early on in the process of sort of, uh, of making the feature because it was, I wanted it to be a life story told through sound using both Delia's own pieces of music alongside a soundtrack constructed from samples that I chose. So it, I thought I need to, to choose these samples with, with, with another musician and I need, I need to kind of, um, and I wanted to have another soundtrack that went alongside Delia's so that they were sort of in partnership on, on some level and at first when I approached Cozy she really loved the idea which was fantastic because it was sort of a hunch that connection but she totally responded to it and she said but I don't want to be in it and I was like oh no 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 not at all and then slowly you know as things evolved it became you know I really loved this idea of there being um, a studio in vision where you see the construction of the soundtrack about the, uh, the soundtrack that's being made um, in a film about a composer, yeah. and I like the idea of you seeing the sort of the two different the two different loads of lots of technology that they both had to deal with at that point, which is why you have the sort of joint studio, which is kind of like this handover space. Um, it was like we had a table in there of stuff you don't really see that much actually, but the the lampshade lives on it, and sort of all sorts of tools that get handed yeah. to uh, cozy. Um, like sort of passing a baton, um, really. So um, that was kind of where that, how that happened. Yeah. So she was fantastic to work with. And I really wanted to explore that kind of 
fantasy of a collaboration and, and that exchange of ideas across eras between these two fascinating musicians and yeah. that celebrate sort of independence and imagination um, and their sort of connecting points. Yeah. And it helps reach it out to now, you know, it kind of creates this, this, you know, sort of temporal lineage from Delia's time through Cozy's time through to your time as the filmmaker and then almost beyond, you know, we're very fortunate that we've got a theme tune by Gweno, um, who obviously feels like a an artist, for, you know, he's an artist very much inspired by the workshop and, and yeah. she created a theme tune for us, which was, you know, which she said was, you know, a, a direct homage to the work they did in the workshop. So it's, you know, and it feels like a, a good time, you know, it's certainly some of the most interesting music being made in this country is by female electronic musicians, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely, and films, I agree. Yeah. She's wonderful, Gweno. I absolutely love her stuff. Really incredible. I saw her at the, um, in fact, at, at Port Elliot, I, I saw her, it was probably the last time I saw her play. She was amazing. She really was quite something. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, where are we going next? We've done, we've done loads, actually. Yeah, I've got loads of, we've touched on most of the things I wanted to, we wanted to talk about. Um, what was I going to, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I guess the uh, yeah. Shall I? Shall I? Um, I, sh- I should wait for you to ask me a question. <laughs> no, go for it. Tell you what no, we're going to say. No, no, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to, I'd love to hear what you want to say um, and where you want to take the conversation. I'm just making sure yeah. there's nothing that, yeah. Yeah, no, you, no, you go for it for, first. Oh god, now the <laughs> pressure, now the pressure's on because I know you're expecting a you're expecting a question. Um, uh, yeah, I think one of the things that um, is interesting about the film, which is that it's quite generous about the workshop um but also about other things you know so you kind of you almost kind of take not digressions but you you're inclusive of the things that the delia came into into contact with you know um like the uh oh, what's it called the unattended computer and yes. things like that you yes. know it, the, there is time spent in the film um with yeah, with other things that were going on at the time that are not not necessarily the things that Delia was driving, but you 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 do see it from her perspective, and you get to understand what she thought of those things, or you know, uh, how much of that was kind of just a general interest in in telling as much of the story around this time as possible, and how much of it was kind of to go back to what Andy was sort of saying about people are going to have to you know understand what this is, and that you know the questions around well. It can't just be about Delia. It has to be about you know. Was there was that a thing that sort of came in in terms of well, we need other stuff, or was it actually I really want to try and get this in because I'm interested in this as well. I think I was very interested in in her um, in the artistic community around her and the artistic community that she was drawn to, and in a way she created. So although. You know, again, it's that thing of that that tension between her working in a very isolated way um, and needing that very sort of meditative space to create these these huge landscapes, which she did, um, and also her her interest in, and fascination with needing to to reach out and work with other people um, and explore. Um, an experiment and what I really re- always it's to do with this idea of experimenting to get to a different place um, and what I think while she was really fascinated with tape manipulation um, 
she was also interested in new technologies. So this is, there, there is this idea that, oh, Delia hated synthesizers, which I believe she did. I think what she hated was the limitations of them and how crude they were at the time they were brought into the workshop. But I think she was, I wanted to show this, her interest with um, exploring new ideas, which she did with Peter Zinoviev. Um, he's a fascinating musician and composer in his own right. And, you know, very different. There he is working with random sequences, working in a very different environment, um, kind of with a studio that's financed by a sort of private income from his from his his wife. And he he was in a very different place, but he was um, an inventor in a way, sort of trying to invent a a sample, an early an early sampler. Um, So the fact that she was kind of there when the first British synthesizer exist was brought into being through the, the VCS3 was I thought really yeah. really interesting that she was there are all these sort of key moments that you hear about but you don't really know how she how she fits in with them but she she did yeah. you know and that that there is that kind of network of of um, creative enterprise and and trying to push things in a different direction and also just that sense that she that even within the BBC, that there was only a certain point she could take that laboratory thinking, you know, that actually it had to, she had to go elsewhere to to really really push push yeah. push it out there. Um, yeah, and it's important. So, it's important to well, like, if you know, important. But I think it's it feels important to you to kind of to to put into play her influences as well, you know, so that you sort of see her her genius sort of was not in a vacuum it wasn't like oh she sprung out and had all these you know that you track it back to you know sort of obviously the you know the amazing sequence around the blitz um which is just a fascinating kind of almost kind of ignition for for an artist but then um sort of you know the the poem electronique and things like that you know that you're kind of you're not you're linking out but also saying if you know when you follow her work later you see how she was interacting with these things in a really unique way you know so it's um it, it humanizes her I think in a way of seeing yes you know. yes I think that's that was something that I, I felt very that I thought was important I think that um just the, just that idea of, of, of who is this 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 person you know and this is why kind of that embodiment idea was very much embedded in the research and I couldn't just be a kind of crap historian I had to kind of go beyond something that was academic and it it kind of becomes a a, like I was sort of explaining earlier a, a, a dramatic process where you are imagining who is that person yeah who is she? What? How did? How did it actually? How did it actually work when Peter Zinoviev came to the, um, not Peter Zinoviev, sorry, David Vorhaus came into the Radiophonic Workshop? What? What was that day, and how did it go? You know. Yeah. Um. So, I. Yeah. Yeah. Was that was that part of the attraction for playing her then to kind of to almost to live through those? You know, because wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know embodying Delia because I think that you look at the archive footage and there's a you're not doing an impersonation you're not doing an imitation you know so when when did it was it always the thing that you were going to play her or when did it when did when did you think actually I'm interested in seeing this through her eyes in a kind of physical tactile way 
Yeah, I think it was always that. Yeah. I, I didn't question uh, playing her at all. It was like that's that was kind of how I wanted to understand her because that's my experience as an actor. That's how I sort of understand any of the characters that I that I play or explore. And actually, sort of the 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 thing that was a new skill for me was was writing and constructing a, a film around a character, but. The, the starting point for me creatively is always that idea of getting under the skin of a of a person and trying to understand them as best as possible mm. um and linking that to my own sort of lived experience and and trying to make sort of sense of it that's your job as an actor so that was the in a weird way it was that was quite a natural process and then the research was just pushed further um for sort of the the writing side of it um and you know there's no shortage of conventional biopics and uh, in my mind I always find that they can be quite crude and my feeling was that it tends to be undramatic to shape a life and a career into a coherent narrative when the, the reason or the inspiration for wanting to tell that story might spark something more interesting so I I don't know I just wanted to bring bring in Delia's archive and I wanted to bring in the idea of blending fact and fiction you know I'm really fascinated by um you know Agnes Varda her work um the way she kind of those lines of what's memory and and what's imagination and you know and 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 trying to kind of um I don't know. I took a lot of inspiration from her. And also on another level, you know, I love Peter Watkins stuff, the way he works with fact and fiction in in like the Culloden and Culloden, sorry, um, the war game and La Commune, particularly. Have you ever seen La Commune? No, I I missed it. It was on at the weekend. Was Was it on at the weekend? It was available for free online. I can't remember. Someone was... And then I, wow. I, the Sight and Sound newsletter put it, said, sent a link to it, and then I didn't pick it up. I think it, it, it was on till the 31st, yeah. Um, I only had it in French on, I could find <laughs> bits of it in French. I don't, I don't know French. So eventually I got it on DVD a few years back and it was, it really blew me away, actually. And that was another sort of proof to me that this idea of deconstructing and standing in and outside of the action can can work in that in, in in a sort of film sense yeah so yeah I mean your background is as an act as an actor you know sort of very uh prolific um uh but you you also talk like a filmmaker we should not say actors aren't filmmakers but there certainly feels like there's a directorial sensibility just sort of in there was it did you always want to direct or was was this the thing that that kind of moved you into that space it's funny because I it was kind of yes I did always but I didn't I knew I didn't want to direct um, television I knew I didn't want to particularly direct theatre none of that really came in I it was just very very clear to me that I wanted to make films so you know all the way through drama school I had a Super 8 camera I was constantly doing that I was splicing Super 8 films together I've got like about three years worth of a Super 8 of my sort of personal like diary life um and you know always screening films on with projectors and stuff like that so that was always kind of a fascinating thing and sort of in between jobs I was always doing 
courses at various places, learning software and learning to edit. So I learned to edit really as something that I just needed to do um, and kind of didn't go to film school, but I, I did take some time out and did an art foundation. This was after drama school, actually, because I wanted to think about filmmaking. I'd, you know, I was making it all up as I went along. I didn't know what, what to do about it. I just knew I wanted to do it. And so I was grabbing at every opportunity that I could. Yeah. Um, uh, and sort of, and then in the end, I ended up making a couple of music documentaries. That was kind of my film school, <laughs> you know, uh, my own version of it. So I kind of learned how to do things like that, but, but through editing and software and stuff. Which I think shows in the film. I think that, you know, that the editing of the film is, is, is fantastic, you know, not just in terms of cuts, but in terms of pacing and in terms of the relationship between times, the relationship between formats, you know, archive and the performance stuff, you know, so it's really, you can really see that you are a director who has taken a real interest and important interest in editing, you know, rather than, rather than a lot of directors who don't really understand editing, you know, you seem to have a good grasp of the power of it, which I guess as well kind of links to Delia and her, she was editing sound constantly yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that's the th- th- this film was was const- sort of there were layers of construction of this film from from the writing and the research and uh, and also I, I, you know the story of any film and in the edit but I felt like I you know I was I had to be driving that really that was and also the sound too because w- the way it worked with the sound was that you know Cozy and I together chose these this sort of body, this 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 sort of database, this sort of bank of sound from Delia's archive that they, you know, her estate very generously allowed us to do, um, and so we both had access to this to this bank of sound, and so I would go through and scene by scene, um, give her like these um track track headings, like um what do you call them, you know. Uh, yeah you know on a yeah yeah track track headings (laughs) so you know like for instance we had one which was called a ceiling of sickening sound and that was for where she goes in and tries to kind of get all these jobs and she's being told by these men behind desks no all the time so cozy just kind of went off into her private world and constructed what she thought that meant Mm. um and at the same and then would sort of bring them back to me so I had these sort of two fantastic resources I had sort of pure Delia and sort of Delia filtered through Cozy's imagination as well and I had you know it was just amazing in the edit to have those two resources yeah um yeah yeah and I also worked with I must say a brilliant um editor called um Luke Luke Thompson who was really really fantastic yeah. we didn't you know we, we we met um you know he was somebody that was recommended to me who was he was starting out and I just thought we, we had no idea what this was was going to be and we sort of did a, we we did the shoot in two kind of um in two sections we did one in November and we did uh, one in at the end of February in in terms of the dramatic stuff that we we did um, not the not all the interviews and yeah. the Coventry stuff, but uh, so after the first um, uh, shoot at Twickenham, we we just kind of had a couple of days together and we just instantly clicked. You know, it was yeah. really fantastic. So he was at the controls and w- I was 
kind of driving it and yeah. it worked so well you know it was a he was completely in tune with the project and understood you know what what we needed um so that was a, a really really great relationship I mean I don't, I don't have any really experience of working with editors because I you know I hadn't had that mm. ever so this was this was incredible so obviously I don't want to work with anybody else ever again obviously I, don't, <laughs> I guess everybody feels like that you know <laughs> once you find once you find the team it's hard isn't it to yeah to change um and I think but it, it speaks to yeah that kind of the the art of collaboration you know which is both in the kind of the like say the post-production but it's it's it runs throughout the film and the 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 relationship that or the relationships in the workshop are really beautifully conveyed as a as a kind of space of yeah sort of mutual mutual respect in the work you know um you know that i think Delia faced a lot of challenges in the workshop you know in terms of the, the maybe the hierarchies certainly in terms of credit and the industry in general but you almost that space felt like a cocoon where it's like okay well this is us and this is our work and it was it was it felt felt like a really freeing space yeah definitely I'm really glad you picked Mm. up on that too it's it's um I I I think I'm really fascinated by by the idea of of collaboration and connections and how that particularly influenced Delia throughout her life and that even when she left the workshop when she went to Cumbria although she sort of had a bumpy start she found this artistic community mm-hmm. through Lee Wan Chia's um, LYC museum and I think that's a, it's fascinating to hear that she kind of that continue that fascination with art and collaboration carried on really all the way through her life yeah. and never stopped even though that's not what you so much hear about um, and you know it was I, I, I know I haven't said this about Andy, but working with Andy Stark, I mean, having that incredible, um, he's such an incredibly supportive and brilliant producer. Um, and you needed someone like that for a project like this. He really steered the ship brilliantly. And what's interesting is that you kind of make a point, which, you know, not necessarily overtly, but certainly through the the, the story and the script and the, the narrative of of a, of a of a almost a gender difference you know like that you know we, that there is this idea societally that you know men have historically put women down but it's it's more complicated than that there's it's it's about hierarchies because in that room with the other men they 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 don't exoticize her they don't treat her as you know they treat her as an equal and respect her and love her i mean they they, they they're awed by her you know but but outside of that space, as you go up or around, that's where the the kind of the gender conflict comes in, which I think is a really, you know, as you sort of said earlier about the kind of the time we live in, it presents a very complicated and nuanced, you know, argument about how women have been and where women have been kind of restricted and afflicted and constrained, which is not simply that you know men are bad you know but it's 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 exactly. it, it, it's, it's men plus something you know those posi- yes. positions of power which i think is a really it's a really timely film in that sense because it 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 really it presents a very complex um representation of you know of something which is in the media a lot in terms of women and technology and the ideas around you know women in kind of technological spaces be it you know, sort of Google or, you know, video games or, or something like that, you know. Um, how important was it to you to 
to both kind of address the gender discourse as it you know for want of a better phrase but but to but to to kind of to try and get under the skin of what is a very very difficult um issue which which doesn't dilute the power of it and it doesn't it doesn't let men off the hook obviously but it does it does do something really interesting in terms of that space that it's quite rare at the moment in terms of the layers that are involved yes i, I really passionately um care about that nuanced debate around this and around um um the the problem of power and 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 patriarchy because really it's a lot of men are victims of patriarchy um and i think that as well and not it won't necessarily manifest in the same way but <clears throat> it was really important for me to show that she she had good healthy male friendships but at the same time there was something bigger within the establishment that was the thing that caused caused the burnout if you like yeah um and i i i think that is something that that we need to be more nuanced about you know it's like you know um uh, um it it's yeah so that was something that was very was was very much in my mind um and yeah i have got so much to say about this i'm almost exploding so i can't actually even gather my thoughts on it yeah sorry <laughs> but yeah i'm yeah. No, i'm so glad <laughs> i'm so glad that you that you picked up on that but yeah i i think that's kind of my overriding point yeah. on it really one of my, yeah because one of the most powerful moments is that is when bright when the credit comes through for Doctor Who and, and Brian sat, sat there and they're reading the, the article about, about it, you know, and she sort of says about, you know, obviously he takes the credit because it's his name's on the workshop and, and Brian's just like, yeah, it's not right. You know, and you really, you know, like it's such a complex moment because obviously he is, he is in a position of privilege and this is a time when activating that and asking questions about that, it just, it, it didn't, it didn't happen. You know, like he is an employee, so he sees himself as an employee. He doesn't realise that there is the potential for him to do something about that. And that's not a criticism of him because that's, you know, but but it speaks really loudly to the moment and a reminder that, you know, that, that there is complicity, but there's also naivety and there's also just a time when he didn't think to do that. He was like, this is the system. The system skewers, and he sees her as the artist who's created the thing, not necessarily as, a, as being put down by a woman. It's she's the artist who's been put down, you know. And it's such a small moment, but it speaks so powerfully. Um, yeah. So I think it's really interesting to to hear you not talk about it because it's we'd be here for another hour, obviously. Yeah, um, but I, I think she'll be. You know, I think what's what's interesting about that as well is that you know because there wasn't time for me to bring everything yeah. in that. The, the there was a change at the workshop in a, around 1965 and that was precipitated by John Baker um and he was uh, you know campaigned uh for them to have to be credited as composers and then you will see that post 65 Delia was starting yeah. to be credited but the point is that it wasn't until you know 13 years after her death that she was acknowledged for writing the most successful, uh, arguably most successful science fiction theme tune ever. Yeah. You know, th that should have been righted 
yeah. a lot sooner. I mean, in 1965, when John Baker got that sorted, for instance. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So it is, it's, it, it's, it is, it is complicated. But I, I think that the main thing about that gender thing to, for me, um, and maybe it was, a, you know, this is more, was more of a hunch, but it, it nobody really know why knew why Delia left the BBC. She talks about it sort of with hindsight later on in her life as being self-preservation. But I wondered whether that thing of when the synthesizers appeared at the workshop, you know, it wasn't that she was a technophobe. It wasn't that she wanted to sort of hold on to her sort of process and not explore, because as we saw, you know, she was exploring and experimenting with all kinds of things all the time. It was more that she could see the way things were going and that this was really a labour-saving mm. device and it was going to compromise the sound. Yeah. And it, not only that, it was going to create, turn her job into something completely different. I have such respect for the fact that she could stop and see that and know herself well enough to know that was not the place for her to be. And that was the sort of narrative that I wanted to address and redress, really, because yeah. In the 90s, I think you were always told, oh, she sort of collapsed into alcoholism and blah, blah, blah. You know, she may well have had problems, but I think it was a much bigger. Um, she had a lot more agency than she was given credit for. Yeah, she she under, she wanted to be an artist and she didn't want to be a technician. And that's no no disrespect to technicians. But that, I think that, you know, so much of the way that film and TV is put together is is functional, you know, and she was a genuinely avant garde, you know, idiosyncratic um artist um working in, a, in 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 that space so yeah it is remarkable that she saw she saw the future and didn't want to just didn't want to you know and obviously I think what's interesting as well is that she knew that her she knew where, where her interest and where her where her artistry lay you know people that did amazing things with synthesizers you know particularly in the in that post-65 era but but she mm. knew actually if I stay here in this context this is what it's going to be. So, yeah, I mean, all power to her for for doing yes. that. Um, and you know that that the iconic piece of music that you know that, that everyone knows her for now finally is one of the most famous um, and incredible pieces of 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 music, not just electronic music. Yes. You know, it's yes. it's it's yeah. an incredible piece of music um, that yeah, completely puts you in a space. And which is amazing because they never even saw it. They just had this, you know, they had no idea what they were scoring to other than a, that little bit of paper, you know, but, but it manages, it managed to evoke everyone's feelings about that show, regardless of what the episode was about. You know, it put you in a space of feeling that, that, that music can do. It can put you in a space where you're absolutely ready for something in a way that, you know, might not actually play out, but it, it's in you you know and it's it's her ability to do that is astonishing you know yeah really uh, it's it, i mean it almost is like a sort of proto virtual reality isn't it it's sort of like it's so expansive you can see a world in your head that which is i think why you're hiding behind a sofa aged whatever cuz it was it 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 felt dangerous yeah. you know <laughs> yeah and that and that's partly to do with the the, the way she has um you know how her how that experience has lived in her body that experience of 
living through the Coventry Blitz and her and as she describes it as that was her first experience of electronic music was hearing the sounds of the air raid sirens and the all clear sounds I think that's such a a, a powerful image isn't it yeah and you can see her always returning to that emotional place in her work you know and the maths obviously feels to come out of it like trying to order something which is unorderable I don't think that's a word yeah no <laughs> definitely I, I, and and uh, as well I think something that's really fascinating to me is her these are experiments in in abstraction and abstract sound she had a fascination with abstract sound yeah. and she even says that when she used to go to the Benedict to benediction to the Latin masses that was as a child she had no idea what the words meant but she was totally sort of drawn in to and, and seduced by that sound. So her returning to, um, even though she she didn't have a religion and she didn't want, she wasn't devoured in any way. That was her upbringing. And I think those those sort of ex, you you hear the sound of the yeah. the Latin masses and a lot of her in a lot of her music too. Yeah, this is going to be a weird tangent, but there's, there's a great talk by a Franciscan monk, which I return to a lot, which, which is really nice, but where he talks about the reason that the Latin mass stayed in Western English-speaking cultures for so long was because of the intention was to get people to into that meditative space where they weren't focusing on the words and the meaning of the words. They were focusing on the sound and they would they would enter a kind of contemplative space. Amazing. And what's amazing about the air raids as well is that it's mm. a sound devoid of an image where an image ha- is imagined because you're in the shelter you're underground you hear it and but you can't see you know it's you know it's creating something visual but you can't see it and it's the you know it's that that relationship between sound and image which i i found so fascinating in her work because it was always tied to image images she couldn't see images she was imagining images she was prefiguring and even in the hornsey stuff with the newbury gigs you know there's this there's this relationship between how is the sound going to work with images in my head and how does that image relate to the image in, you know, the audience's head that they're going to see. It's, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I agree. It really, really is. Uh, You know, um, I honestly could, I'm sure all filmmakers feel like this, but I I did have my two hour and 41 minute Mm. cut and that that, that felt right to me. But you know, um, where you're exploring all these things, <laughs> yeah. you know, there was a whole section with with Daphne Oram as well, which uh, was really, really difficult mm. to to take away. But um, you know, in the end, I had to streamline into Delia. Yeah. Um, but but you know, I'm glad you did because I think that what you do is you get this really fascinating conversation between you and Delia and the form that you're working in, which is the film. You know. Not to say that the two hour, two hour forty one cut would have been no, amazing. It um, was way too long, you know. But 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 the, the 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 decisions and the choices, you know, so many music docs just don't make they don't make any choices really. They don't think about what what am I trying to do through this through this piece of work, and it's clear that you've done that. And I think the result is it's just it's exhilarating, really. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I am really really fascinated about lengths of films that's been my most recent fascination I mean you must have such a view on that you know because things can be huge and they can be 
not huge and everything and what am I trying to say I mean I'm really taking taking this this conversation down a road it shouldn't be going down but I I am very interested to know like in terms of your students and studying how how do you talk about duration um a lot of it comes down to feeling I think you know I think that much of when we talk about the length of films it comes from it comes from just the experience of watching them and knowing that you know something's not working I think you know I think La Commune is probably a perfect example you know in terms of it's a long Mm -hmm. film but and a lot of people will be bored by it or put off by it but 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 for for those people who it works for time is not the is never an issue you know like it feels you know it's it's horribly um vague but it, it feels as long as it should feel you know and I think that when we talk about length we it's always because something doesn't work and some, the choices haven't been made and the, the, the conceptualization of a work hasn't been done. So when I say to my students, you know, every year my students make 10 minute shorts for their final project. And every year, most of them will be like, oh, this really needs to be 20 minutes. This really, you know, I need, to, and it's like, no, guarantee when you show it at a crit, we'll probably get it down to about eight, you know, because, because there's an attachment, you know, you had that attachment to your material, like, ah, this is interesting or this is, but it's like, actually what's the film telling you to do? What's this story, which is, you know, subjectively emerged, but is also its own thing. What's that telling you to do? And and are you in dialogue with that? And I think that so many filmmakers are not in dialogue with the story. And because of whatever reason that films can be longer or, you know, you know, and I, what I always do as well is I always remind students that, when people and I think it doesn't help with people. Well, this is this is a complete tangent, but when people sort of study screenwriting, they look at the scripts for films, and you know, there's this idea that a ninety-minute film is, you know, is is right, or a two-hour drama is right. But it's like you, that's they were create, creative for commercial context in the same way that that Doctor mm-hmm. Who was, in the same way that sitcoms are twenty-three minutes because of adverts. You know, twenty-three minutes is not the ideal length of a sitcom. It's the ideal length of a sitcom that has Seven adverts, minutes of adverts, <laughs> and you know, and a, and a, and an A feature was ninety minutes to two hours because it sat in a program with newsreels and cartoons, and a B feature maybe, and you had you know you had a program that was built around six hours and then swapped, you know. So it's these are these are not creative artistic decisions. You know, art has emerged from this, but but the idea that it has to be ninety minutes, it's like no, the, the story should tell you, and that takes time to get to get to know and that's what students struggle with is oh it needs to be longer and you're like actually most of this stuff is not it's not serving the story it's 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 trying to get them to be critical and objective in a a, which is really difficult because it is a subjective experience yeah absolutely it is very difficult but I guess it's that thing of what is you just have to you know make the the frame not the frame Mm. of framing I mean like the, the frame of the picture if you see what I mean smaller sometimes um yeah. and that is quite uh it's it's quite an interesting way of of looking at stuff i think i think i i read the walter murch book when i was editing um and that was really i really found that fascinating and one of the things that he suggests that you do is put um you know like um maybe maybe I, this is when i was reading it or or when i saw a talk with him but he was saying about um putting post-it notes 
of the film. Uh, so different coloured post-it notes on a wall. So you can see the film as a visual thing mm. and literally stand and so everything is colour-coded. So whenever a particular character comes in, for instance, that see, or or if you're in a particular location, however, you find your own code for it, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. So you code it so you understand your own code. But and is, then you yeah. sit in front of it and you see how, how often certain things are popping up. And, um, and you sort of, he said, he talked about sort of meditating in front of it, literally, and just sort of allowing the sort of um, size and scale of it to kind of um, have a sense of its own and then to... And actually, when I was really stuck, I did that. And it was bloody really helpful. Yeah. Well, because I think, you know, it's about taking a physical step back from it, isn't it? You know, it's about finding a way to to enter into an analysis and, and a critical thinking about it for the, you know, which a lot of filmmakers don't like to talk about. They like to talk about it being instinctual and, you know, but I think the reality is that most people find a way to 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 carve out a little bit of objectivity be it through the limitations, like you say, of having to find the 10 minutes, you know, that's a limitation. It's a challenge that, yeah. you know, you have to, you have to deal with because there's a, there's a set of parameters and a, and a result, which, which needs to be reckoned with. So sometimes you're forced into those positions, but sometimes it's, you, 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 you like you say, with the post-it notes, you find a way to do it because, you know, because you care about it, I think, you know, and you, you don't, you don't want it to just disappear and fall, you know, and the thing is audiences won't respond to it. Um, if, if it's not working, you know, um, and I think trying to find out why it's working and, and how it's working, I think is, is important. And, and your film, you, you do that, the, you're doing that the whole way through the film. The whole film is about that in many ways, you know, it's about how did, how do these things get made and why and who makes them and what's it like to make them. Um, and we see the making of yeah. the film uh, while we're watching you trying to see what it's like to make a piece of music, you know, um, it's yeah it's it's really refreshing and exciting i think to to spend time in that space because it's for me it's a space that most filmmakers occupy and not enough are critical of you know they're just like well you know here's a four hours Zack snyder's justice league cut and it's like no one wants that you know um but it's it's power and it's like i can do it so i'm going to do it it's like but that doesn't mean that you should you know and i think you know your film and i think many of the the women who were in those roles did, had to ask that question. They they had they didn't have the privilege of not asking those questions of why am I doing this? You know, because it, they, these opportunities are limited. You know, for women still. You know, there's no guarantee yeah. you're going to release the two hour and forty one minute cut down the line if you wanted to. You know, this might be the only thing. So you you, you know that that certainly feels present in Delia's story. Is actually, you know, I know. I know the rarity of being in this position because of, you know, everywhere I've gone and they've said no. And this is, I, I understand the specialness of this in a way that a lot of people coming out of university who ended up in the workshop probably never had to think about because it could be a choice they could make and, and live with it. You know, I think it's again, but that's all, that's both story, but it's both in the experience of the film, you know? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you, you think that. Um, thank you so much for um, spending time with it and for talking to me about it. It's Absolute pleasure. Yeah, really, really, really great. Well, thank you. I do have one more question, and this oh, is yes. because, this is a random question. I'm a I'm a, a, a voracious credit hunter, um, and you thanked the Houghton Regis Heritage Society, and I grew up in Luton, and I've never known anything 
related to Houghton Regis, apart from got a, a couple of good friends there. So I was like, what role did the Houghton Regis Heritage Society play in this film? I need to know, because when I go back, I'm going to be saying, like, I need to go to Houghton Regis and visit whatever it is. So You're going to laugh your head off when you find out. Um, <laughs> do... <laughs> In in the section where Delia is in um, uh, is in the quarry, the disused uh, okay. quarry, and she's in her cabin. Um, I, you know, I, I really wanted us to shoot it in a quarry, in a cabin, but obviously we didn't. We so instead, what we did was um, I, I we got you know how we have the projections of London, um, and so we played around with that idea of using projections. I think in this instance, we found a really amazing um, quarry that must have been in Houghton. Yeah. Um, and it was a, an image that we loved and used and blew it up huge. And that was our kind of, that was what was out the window in the in the quarry, um, in the cabin in the quarry. And they were the best ever. They got straight back, straight to us, straight back to us. And they said, yes, you can use it. And they were incredibly generous. Amazing. So well, I'll be happen. making a um, yeah. a movie pilgrimage to Houghton Regis. So when people say, what are you doing at this yes. quarry? I'll be like, this was a very important part of a, of a great film. <laughs> it's probably got like massive flats on it now or a Tesco or something, hasn't it? <laughs> Might do, yeah. But I mean, quarrying, that's, you yeah, know, that's because it's part of the Chilterns. So there's a lot of... Oh, yeah. of course. Yes, it could be It might so be, fun. yeah. And there's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a lot of walks around old quarries. Um, I used to take the dogs out sort of Dunstable way. Um Oh God! If you ever find it, yeah. if you ever find it, if you, please. I will. I will do. Yeah, You'll, me and me and the dog will be at the quarry. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I think that's the best place oh. to end. Um, <laughs> talking yeah. about how it reaches. It, it definitely, <laughs> definitely. Cool. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. It's so good to meet you. Really great to meet you. And say hi to um, to Dario and another. Absolutely. Time, Maybe I IRL, as they yeah. say. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of um, good vibes from me to you. I love your podcast. It's really fascinating. I've heard loads of them. They're brilliant. I love the Radio 1 one. Cool. We thought, yeah, a nice. this is a nice kind of almost a yeah spiritual follow-on, I think, to, to that. So, yeah, yeah thank you. Great. Thank you for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Great. Well, great to meet you. And you too. See you soon. Thank Take you. Care. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye.
So I hope you guys uh, all enjoy listening to that interview. I haven't heard it yet in this strange situation. Now the fans have heard the interview before <laughs> the host has in this weird podcasting universe. Um, but Neil, just just on reflection, then having just come out of the interview, there is there anything that 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 you sort of learnt or has pushed you in a in a new direction of thinking, maybe in, in respect of of continuing to write your book. Yeah, um, yeah, good question. I th- touched on it briefly there. I think what, what's interesting is that when I watch music documentaries, um, I'm, I'm always looking for, you know, the, the, the smartness really in terms mm. of the form, in terms of like, I don't want to say an auteurist approach, but, but certainly a kind of directorial hand in terms of finding a way to tell the story appropriately. And, you know, having seen this film a couple of times, I think it's a really smart film. Like, I think it's really, it's intellectually complex in terms of its storytelling. But what was really fascinating was hearing Caroline talk about how it wasn't just the the kind of Delia's biography that she was interested in and sort of curious about and also kind of nervous about dealing with it. It was, it was the idea of biography itself and the idea of what am I actually doing when I'm, telling any kind of story about another person, you know, and how that worked its way into the film. And, and it, it kind of opened up a realisation of, yeah, actually, that so much of this film is an interrogation of 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 that idea of what is what is true, what is not, what right do I have to even interpret this stuff, you know, and and then seeing the the reason that she'd put herself in in the film in, in such a new light of like, actually she's guiding us through her own interrogation of, of telling the story, not just Delia's story, but actually the telling of the story and yeah, using yeah, yeah. form and using cozy Fanny 2T and using so many different elements, which in the film works seamlessly. But that's you know. interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it, it could be that it could have been a real mess, this film, Yeah, but it, yeah. you know, because there's so many moving parts and the fact that it isn't, and the fact that it does have tonal shifts you know, because it, it it's kind of like a, a, at certain points it's a sort of jolly BBC history, you know, historical drama that you'd see on a Sunday afternoon, and then it goes into P- Peter Strickland country towards the yeah. end, and then there's this, you know, there's all the experimental sound, and even and even as you say, on a, a sort of self-reflexive element where where Caroline as Delia is looking at the camera and saying you know, what is going on here and yeah. how do I feel and how can I interpret? And I love that stuff at the very end where it's sort of posthumously beyond the grave, what Caroline is probably reading onto what Derbyshire would think about, about you know, how her, her career has been reflected on through the obituary where she basically disagrees with everything that's been written about, which is which is almost kind of like saying, you know, you have to even take this film with a little bit of, you know, with, with quite a big pinch of salt maybe. Yeah, and I think and she does, that's why she mentioned it, calling it the myths, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and not trying to debunk the myths, but to explore how those myths come to be um, and how her sort of life has, you know, in each moment has been a series of like decisions based in time, but then it's seen as this whole thing and how that's understood. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a really, it's a really difficult trick to pull off, I think. And I think she's done it amazingly. But, but I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, as, as, as you'll hear and as, 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 as our audience will hear, you know, that she wasn't just passionate about this woman, you know, on a kind of superficial level. You know, it wasn't like, you know, rah-rah, she's a woman who did well. 
there's a really deep connection to her work and her process. And she really tried to make this film in the spirit of Delia's process, you yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. the layering and the building of disparate elements and creating something new out of sounds, you know, that and obviously images that, that might be familiar in, in isolation and sort of finding a new, and it, you know, just, yeah, I think it's just a really remarkable piece of work. And I think what's interesting about it is I don't, I don't see how yeah I think you see a lot of things you think oh this is how things are going to be done now or like this this marks a significant change in formal approaches to you know in this case music documentary but I don't see how I don't see how you could do that as a thing other than you know I think the fact that Caroline is an actor and approaches so much of it as an actor um and also has this other world information means that I, I think it, it it's likely to be more of a one-off in terms yeah, of because yeah, yeah. you'd need you'd need that person embodying the, the the main character but also having a kind of critical distance you know I think yeah, that yeah, it, yeah. I don't I, I I would I would be surprised if we see another film like this no and, and especially when you look look at it kind of in conjunction with sisters with transistors which I watched last night which is much more much broader but much more um, not formulaic is the wrong word. What's the word I'm looking for? It's it's just more of a kind of um, archival documentary that, that yeah. splits between, you know, different women who had influences in this sort of field of uh, sonic engineering, sonic, comp- sonic composition. And yeah, I mean, it's just interesting how this does, you know, really belie what is, you know, the, the highly problematic, you know, patriarchal discourse for want of a better word that, that, somehow the the technical elements of modern society are are uh, in, for some kind of weird biological reason not something that women are are, are geared towards or interested in i mean there may be there may, i mean i mean it's one of the questions i really wanted to ask was that, that this idea between the nature and the nurture and what women and men choose to do as jobs and what they're interested in and how much that is influenced by the world around us you know but it's just it's just fascinating how how these these pioneers and you know I'd heard of Delia Derbyshire but not none of the others but how great they are in in terms of um, producing the work that they did but but also finding the the kind of gaps in society where they could where they could do that considering how much how many obstacles and how many barriers are there yeah we slightly touched on that on that aspect we didn't really get into the nature of nurture stuff. Um, mm. uh, and I think it's the kind it, of worms you, do, you, you well, perhaps yeah. need to kind of yeah. circumvent. <laughs> yeah, and I think you will hear that. You know that I yeah, think yeah, that, yeah. that Caroline's got a lot to say on that. Um, you know, and almost it was it was like that's that's a different podcast itself. So yeah. you, you you'll probably get the chance to ask that question at some point. Yeah. But um, yeah, and that was interesting about the Sisters with Transistors film, which I also watched last night, um, and thought that yeah, there is there's a there's a decision here to to just tell this story from the kind of the perspective of these women as artists and as you know composers you know that the 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 patriarchal stuff and the obvious gender imbalances kind of come in but they weren't apart from in one of the the vignettes kind of very very obvious but but a lot of the time it, it really just tried to focus on you know the women's achievements in that realm you know which i thought was you know yeah, 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 yeah. was was great in a way because it's like because I think you know, so so often, you know, the, there's almost a a kind of a weight of having to, like we sort of say, having to talk about the ideology that underpins everything. And it's like, well, actually, if you do that, you then almost excusing 
you know, you're sort of, what's the, oh, excuse me, qualifying it and saying, well, you know, these women were great, yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. you know. Yeah, and, yeah. No, and that's exactly what you exactly, don't want to do. You know. yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you see yeah. it and you're like, God, you you know, like this music is incredible. And, and just their process and their philosophies about it were just like, and, you know, yeah, I didn't know a lot of those women. It was just like, wow, this is an incredible, incredible body. And I did watch the, uh, online on YouTube, there's Bridges... Bridges Go Round, the Shirley Clark film that's that's mentioned in Sisters right. with Transistors, with which was BB Barron. Um, yeah, and I mean it's a great it's a great it's an experimental short. But what's really fascinating is that it's six minutes on YouTube, and they've got the there's two scores were done for it: a jazz score and the electronic score, and they put them both side by side, so it runs through, and you really realise what an you know what power you know that music has, but certainly what that particular kind of era of electronic music does to images. You know, it's really fascinating in terms of the tone yeah. and the feel. And it's almost kind of embedded sci-fi, like alienating, yeah. you know, disorientating other thing. It's really, yeah, so it's well worth... I'm probably going to put a link to that in the show notes because it's well worth checking out. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks very much for, for stepping in and taking the t- taking the, the, the shit forward there because uh, it all went it all went really pear shaped for a little while. Um, Just very lucky that it was a music doc and I was uh, didn't yeah. have to do much. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope you you're feeling better with the with the cold there. If, it, if Neil Neil sounds weird because he's got a cold, if I sound weird, it's because I've got a, a very small Zoom recorder that I'm using here, but. Um, yeah, great to speak to you anyway, and uh, hopefully we'll get all this sorted for next yeah, time. Yeah, um, we got we got through it in the end. Um, yeah, well done on setting it up. Um, you know, I think a great episode, a great guest. You know, I think Caroline's. Yeah, I think people really enjoy a lot of her. Um, yeah, kind of filmic influences and, and kind of way she talks about it. So yeah, real a real privilege to talk to her. Awesome. And um, yeah, good to good to chat to you, and hopefully smoother sailing ahead. Yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah, just to reiterate to the to the audience, um, you can catch us in all the usual places. If you want to email us, we're at uh, cinematologists at gmail.com. Obviously, we're on Twitter as well. And if you want to catch our bonus material, big newsletter just come out this month. And um, yeah, bonus episode to come. Then uh, please, please consider dropping us a two fifty a month. You know, if you think we're a good podcast, we're worth supporting. Would you buy us a coffee if you saw us on the street? Then uh, consider, uh, yeah, just giving us a, that little bit of support to help us with our technology <laughs> to, to keep it get, to keep the podcast afloat. Keep those hamsters on the wheels, man. We are they are tired, as you can tell. <laughs> Marvelous. So yeah, until next time. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. 